This week on the Science of Politics, how higher education makes us more and less equal. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The college admission scandal finds the rich still buying their kids' way into elite colleges, drawing attention to the role of college in perpetuating inequality. But university education remains a source of social mobility and increasing group equality in America. This week, I talked to Deandra Rose of Duke University about her Oxford book, Citizens by Degree. She finds that federal higher education policy empowered women to become majorities of college graduates and voters. Even without those initial ambitions, college access had an important role in rising gender equality. But recent trends in the economics of higher ed have not been so positive. I also talked to Brendan Cantwell of Michigan State University about his Rutgers book with Barrett Taylor, Unequal Higher Education. He finds that inequalities between colleges are increasing, with many institutions lacking the resources to educate. That leaves poor students to pay the price in higher tuition and loans. The good news first. Rose's story is an optimistic vision of how policy made women the collegiate majority. If you look around U.S. college campuses today, you know, it's really hard to miss the fact that women are present in full force. So in the 2017-2018 academic year, women made up a full 56% of American college students. And, you know, if if you consider that next to the fact that historically women have been so marginalized in U.S. higher educational institutions is a really striking development. So I think a lot of people forget the fact that through much of American history, there were gender quotas that colleges and universities used to suppress the number of women that they would admit. Others just simply you know, excluded women entirely. And then women also had a lot of difficulty finding the money that it took to go to college. So my book makes the case that lawmakers really use public policy in a strategic way to fight against gender discrimination in higher education. And it was through something that I describe as a one-two punch in an assault against that discrimination. So the first punch was through redistributive policy. So uh, what we now think of as the core of our financial aid programs, they were actually started in the late 1950s and in the mid-1960s. And that helped to remove financial need as a, a significant barrier to women's movement into higher ed. And then the second punch was through regulatory policy. And so lawmakers basically circled back in 1972 with policy that made it illegal for colleges and universities to discriminate against women in terms of admissions and programming. And so it was through that, I think, really powerful combination of policy forces that really helped to set the stage for women to become this majority in higher ed. Cantwell agrees, but sees colleges' roles threatened by rising inequality between institutions. Women are at parity or even a majority in most colleges and universities, and that is true up and down the the sort of status hierarchy. Uh, what I will say is parts of the 20th century story of American higher education are really, this is a success story in a lot of ways. It, what, what is remarkable is the speed at which access was expanded to women and to low-income students 
and black students who had been formally or informally excluded from the system rapidly over the course of the 20th century. And the expansion of enrollments at individual places and the expansion of the system itself, it is a great success story in many ways. And it did contribute to social mobility and to expanded opportunity. And I think the challenge that we have now is in some ways it's like our our highway system, right? There's this massive infrastructure project that was built very well and quite quickly. And now we have to figure out how to maintain it so that it continues to work for the country and so that it can be adapted to the sort of the new realities. Cantwell and Taylor find big financial challenges for colleges. The biggest takeaways of the book are that the system of higher education, four-year colleges and universities in the United States are, is really stratified. We've always known that it's really stratified, but we think that we've shown s- with some details in the way that they're stratified. I think probably the biggest takeaway is that we've been hearing for decades about the consequences of state divestment in higher education for public colleges and universities. And that's certainly shown up in the price that students pay. But for the first time, right after the Great Recession, it seems like it's also shown up in the basic operating model of these institutions so that smaller public universities that have become really tuition dependent now resemble in sort of underlying their underlying structures now resemble small private universities in ways that they never have before. And we know that small private universities are especially vulnerable to enrollment fluctuations and and the social consequence of public higher education facing that same vulnerability is much higher. Rose agrees that we face new challenges, but thinks history shows we can deal with them by regularly updating policy. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges we face in higher education policy right now is that sometimes we get stuck in, I feel like there's this inertia in terms of how we think of the problems facing higher ed. So historically, I would argue that lawmakers were a little more nimble when it comes to thinking about what the challenges were you know, of their day. So in the mid 20th century, 1940s and 50s, lawmakers recognized that financial need was a crucial barrier limiting access. 1972, we recognized that it was institutional discrimination that was limiting women's access. I feel like in 2019, we've got to recognize that there's a new set of problems that are limiting access or full access for marginalized groups. And so that might require us to deviate from the precedents or the, the tried and true you know, typical financial aid or, you know, and I think that's what we really come to lean on are those, you know, the Pell Grants and Perkins loans and Stafford loans. And instead, we're not, I think there's a lot of, you know, policy drift here, you know, to use Paul Pearson's and Jacob Hacker's term, you know, we're seeing that there have been these really substantial social and demographic changes. And, you know, alongside this spiking, you know, striking increase in the cost of college over time and a failure to really make sure that our policies are keeping up with those challenges or able to address them fully. So I think we need to reimagine higher education policy. And I think it's something that we ought to do periodically is to check in and make sure that we're really devising solutions that are effectively addressing the contemporaneous challenges Rose's path to her book, Citizens by Degree, combines her scholarly and personal interests. 
So my interest in public policy and in political science really is rooted in an appreciation for problem solving and, and also an appreciation for inequality. And I've always been fascinated by how lawmakers work to solve problems and particularly the problems faced by marginalized groups, groups that have been excluded from some of the resources and uh, activities and experiences that we associate with upward mobility. So when I started thinking really carefully about what I wanted to do as a researcher, I was really focused on gender early on in my academic career and thinking about equality for women. Also really interested in higher education because, you know, in my own case, in in the cases of many people close to me, higher education was really this, you know, extremely valuable resource that made it possible to do things that had never been done, you know, maybe in one's family or, you know, things that you, you really couldn't have fathomed being able to do. So really thinking seriously about the role that higher education has played in women's progress. And I think that's also a, a broader trend in my newer research projects is thinking about how higher education has helped marginalized groups to become more fully integrated as citizens. Cantwell wrote Unequal Higher Education after seeing the U.S. stand out in international comparisons with trouble reducing inequality. I have worked on international comparative higher education studies for a long time, and I was doing a, an edited book on massification, the globalization of the massification of higher education. And that work led me to sort of discover that as higher education systems expanded, more more and more people participated in different countries around the world, that we what we didn't, we observed a couple of things. One is that systems tended to become more stratified through massification. And the other thing is that they, even though the individual returns to education were pretty high, overall levels of social inequality didn't seem to go down. So with those insights, I became really interested in what this might look like, uh, specifically in the United States in recent years, given state divestment and the sort of intense competition that we've seen through rankings and the great lengths that families have gone to to get to get their their children into sort of what they perceive to be the best the best colleges and universities and I have had a long relationship with Barrett Taylor the University of North Texas I met Barrett when he was a graduate student at the Institute for Higher Education at the University of Georgia, and I was a postdoc there. And he and I got to talking about some of the work that I was doing for this high participation systems book. And he said, well, hey, I've got an idea about how to sort of add some empirical weight to this. And through those conversations, we just started gathering data and working on a conceptual model. And the book sort of the that the book sort of began to develop organically through those conversations. Let's dig into each project. Deandra Rose wanted to put higher education back into the mix as a major driver of gender equality. I actually started to pay attention to this this topic when I was in a graduate seminar years and years ago. And it was a course on work family policy in comparative perspective. And at one point we were talking about the progress that American women have made and really looking into the Uh, women's increasing higher educational attainment. And so we discussed a number of different forces that are widely accepted as having precipitated that or or having uh, helped to facilitate that. 
And so we focused on demographic trends. So the fact that women were having fewer kids or getting married at later ages. We talked about social trends, you know, the fact that there is this declining sense that women should only, you know, focus their their lives and their efforts in the private sphere. There's a decline of just outright discrimination at that time there and also socially just you know the women's rights movement that was an extreme force that has been widely regarded as having helped to move women into public spaces and education as well as increased labor participation among women and so one thing for me as as someone who's really interested in public policy i was struck that we weren't talking about government programming and financial aid in particular And so, you know, I think that adding an appreciation for the role that public policy has played historically in helping to promote women's progress is something that I hope this book makes as a contribution to that discussion. One thing I I try to be really careful about is to make it clear that it's not that the federal programming took the place of or was somehow sort of the sole factor that really made this possible, it really did happen in concert with other things, including, you know, this attention to women's rights. But I think it's an important feature that we, I think it's important that we acknowledge that this was also a force here. She finds that federal policy changes creating financial aid started the path. So the National Defense Education Act of 1958 and the Higher Ed Act of 1965 were two landmark financial aid policies. And I think it's important, as you point out, Matt, that these were gender neutral. So they were framed in a way that made them pretty broadly accessible. And so the National Defense Education Act provided uh, the very first federal student loans that were allocated on the basis of need in a very broad way. And then lawmakers followed up seven years later in 65 with the Higher Ed Act, and that created created additional loans, as well as the very first broadly accessible need-based grants. And so these two policies are really important in terms of gender because they were the first time that women actually had access to this type of broadly accessible financial assistance to attend higher educational institutions. And men had actually enjoyed an earlier iteration of of similar policy under the GI Bill in 1944. So, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a really important landmark for women because they really were omitted, largely omitted from the benefits of the GI Bill. It was something like, you know, fewer than 3% of GI of GIs who returned from World War II who were women. And among those, an especially small proportion made use of the GI Bill's higher education benefits, which were really, really generous. So for the first time, you know, women who had dealt with all kinds of barriers to financial barriers to higher education, it's really interesting to note that with the creation of the NDEA and the HEA, you know, they had they too could experience government support when it came to pursuing college degrees. But it is certainly not a story of proactive legislating for equality from the beginning. Two lawmakers who were from Alabama, Southern Democrats in the mid-20th century, who spearheaded the National Defense Education Act, you know, they had tried in the 1940s and early 1950s to get some sort of federal scholarship program passed, and they'd done that work without any success. And it was 
largely because of tensions over race. And, you know, it was a sense for many Southern Democrats that they felt that if the federal government swooped in or swept in and offered some financial assistance, it would also feel as though it could take liberties in telling Southern states what to do, particularly when it came to school desegregation. So this was you know, on the heels of the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. And many schools in the South were indeed desegregating with all deliberate speed. It was very slow. And so there was a lot of discomfort among Southern Democrats with federal programs. And this was not just in education, it was also in health you know, social policies that could come in and lead to some sort of disruption of the racial order of things. And so they pushed back on these. There was also some concern about the question of whether federal support would go to like Catholic schools. And so, you know, typically proposals would come up and then they would just get struck down. And so what's interesting is that you had these two Southern Democrats and they had these proposals that weren't going anywhere, but then Sputnik happened in late 1957. And all of a sudden the U.S. was really shaken by the loss in the space race. And, you know, there was, in terms of public opinion, a great deal of interest in trying to gain a sense of why we lost and people very quickly turn their attention to education. So all of a sudden, there was this really nice window of opportunity that Lister Hill, uh, the senator from Alabama, and Carl Elliott, a representative from Alabama, saw as a really nice opportunity to get their existing education proposal through the process. So they were very crafty and they gave it a special title. They called it the National Defense Education Act. And they really worked to harness it to this sense of national security and the sense of crisis. Like, hey, the Soviet Union, you know, they're not skimping on investing in brain power or manpower, you know, which was really this sort of gendered term for men's and women's mental capacity or intellectual capacity. You know, there were in, in the historical record, there's a lot of discussion about how the U.S. is wasting powerful intellectual resources by not investing in the entire citizenry when it comes to education. So a lot of people associate the NDEA with science and technology support. You know, I think people have the sense that this provided scholarships for people who were going into STEM fields, but it was really extremely broad and it provided support for people who were going into the humanities and social science, you know, so it was a really broad, a broad reaching need-based program that really got the government into the business of higher education support and financial aid. Lyndon Johnson then included higher ed in a broader agenda of fighting poverty. The Higher Education Act, which was part of Lyndon Johnson's efforts to fight economic inequality. And he saw education as this critical resource when it comes to providing equal opportunity and promoting upward mobility. So he decided to reinforce the financial aid policies that were created in 1958 with student loans, but to also add a federal scholarship, you know, a need-based program. And that was something that lawmakers had not been able to do prior 
And so I think, you know, those two policies really were, they were Promethean when it comes to moving or when it came to moving the government into this new relationship with its citizens and with women in particular, you know, providing a type of support that women had not had. By the time of Title IX, gender equality had become a more direct goal. And then in 1972, you know, that was an entirely new day for higher education policy. So while the NDEA and the HEA had been gender neutral, Title IX was very gender conscious. Lawmakers who crafted it did so with the explicit intention of helping women to gain access where they had been denied. And so... You know, it's, I think the for me, one of the most interesting parts of this research has been the role that race has played and race politics has played in the development of programs that did so much for women. So, you know, race was one of the issues that lawmakers had to tiptoe around when they were dealing with the, the, the National Defense Education Act in 58. And then in 1972, when lawmakers decided to use regulatory policies to bring institutions into compliance with this idea that women should be given equal access to institutions. You know, that was really a result of the lessons that were learned from the civil rights movement and from the crucial landmark civil rights policies of the 1960s. And so, you know, the the godmother of, of Title IX was this woman named Bernice Sandler, who had experienced some sex discrimination when it came to hiring. She was an adjunct professor. And when a permanent position became available on her faculty, she wasn't invited to apply. And so she, you know, was really upset about it. And she asked one of her colleagues and he said, you know what I'm going to tell you, you just come on too strong for a woman. And she was really struck by that. And, you know, as a result, she started to grapple with this question of, gosh, you know, are experiences like this simply a result of individual misfortune? Or is this part of a broader pattern that might need to be addressed by some sort of government action? And so she shared, she she filed a claim against, I believe it was the University of Maryland uh, where she was working and on the basis of an executive order like 11246 that made it illegal for federal contractors to discriminate on the basis of sex when making hiring decisions. And so she shared that claim with a number of different people throughout government, and one of whom was a congresswoman from Oregon named Edith Green. And Edith Green had been a really stalwart participant in, you know, early higher ed policies and, and sort of that she was, her hand was in the higher ed act and the NDEA early on. And she, she was really known as Mrs. Education in the house and this got her attention. And so she decided to convene some hearings on sex discrimination, just broad hearings to get a sense of, you know, what might be going on. And it was really clear early on in the course of those hearings that sex discrimination in higher education and particularly by higher educational institutions was an issue that was ripe for government intervention. And so, you know, Edith Green could have come up with a new scholarship program that would target women, maybe a a new GI bill, but just for women or something like that. But instead, she really focused on regulatory policy and 
her original intent was to amend the Civil Rights Act from 1964. And she was going to, you know, append something that said that there will be no sex discrimination, you know, in educational institutions. But she did, But it was interesting that the, the proponents and supporters of the Civil Rights Act, they asked her not to do it and, and to stand down. They said, you know, this is fairly new. It's still fragile. We don't want to do anything that could re- that could essentially endanger it. So please do attach this to something else. So she decided instead to take advantage of the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. So, you know, the Higher Ed Act is reauthorized every few years. We're actually right now in the middle of, you know, a ramp up to reauthorization in 2019 or in the coming years. But it was time to reauthorize it. And so she decided to use the language of the Civil Rights Act from their title, the, the Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act as a template. And she basically took the wording from this really pithy passage and she inserted the word sex and she inserted the word education to specify that this would apply to educational institutions. And she amended it to this rambling omnibus reauthorization bill. But Rose says there's not much evidence that mass movements brought it about. Instead, it was a story of political elites changing. You know, you'll hear people talk about Title IX and they say, you know, people marched for Title IX and they, you know, really, there was this really active group of, you know, it was, there was a lot of women's activism that helped to make Title IX possible. And that's not entirely true. A lot of sort of the genesis of Title IX in 1972 And then also, you know, the development of the financial aid policies in the decades prior were really shaped by some pretty critical, like a critical handful of political elites who had personal experiences with discrimination, who really brought those experiences into their work in Congress. And they prioritized finding ways to to help alleviate some of those challenges for the broader citizenry. And so I think, you know, and, and, I, and I guess to say that, you know, for Title IX, it was the case that, that you know, there, there were marches and there were instances in which a broader segment of citizens helped to advocate for it. But that came after. That was like in 1976, once we started to grapple with the details of Title IX. But in terms of the, the, the genesis of those programs, they really came from political elites who had personal experiences that helped to bring their attention to the issues, but then also political elites who used their political acumen to get those landmark proposals through the political process and through the legislative process. Title IX is known today for athletics, but it was a late consideration in the Senate. Title IX really was focused on admissions. And and perhaps to a slightly lesser extent to how higher ed institutions treated women once they were on campus in terms of programming and, you know, the allocation of honors. There are these stories of women, for example, being denied Phi Beta Kappa keys because of this argument that, well, you know, men are going to need Phi Beta Kappa keys when they are competing for jobs in the labor market. So, you know, women, you don't really need that. I mean, that was early on. 
And so, you know, fast forward to the mid 20th century, women were not provided with equal opportunities in terms of, you know, extracurricular activities on campus, or, you know, they might have been denied access to certain programming. And so, and, and, you know, we saw this in athletics for sure, that you might have, you know, a lack of women's teams or women's, if they, if there was a women's team, they might not have school support to get uniforms or transportation to the games or access to athletic facilities. But originally Title IX was really about admissions. And so, it was really in the course of the discussion of Title IX in the House and the Senate, uh, particularly in the Senate, that athletics became an issue. And so it was really when uh, the Senate sponsor, Birch Bay, who actually passed away uh, not too long ago, sadly, he introduced this in the Senate and he frames it as, you know, just this very reasonable measure to ensure that women have equal access to higher educational institutions. And he and his colleagues, you know, start to discuss this and pretty soon it becomes clear that there's some pushback. And some of that pushback was from, you know, Senator Strom Thurmond, who represented South Carolina, also another fascinating figure who was involved in a lot of the higher ed and education related discussions uh, during that era. He pushed back and he said, well, you know, what does this mean for military academies like the Citadel? You know, the Citadel was located in his home state and he took issue with this idea that Title IX would somehow disrupt the admissions practices at all male institutions, historically male institutions. And then, you know, there's another, I believe it was Peter Dominic, this senator from Illinois, who took issue with this idea of the federal government telling higher educational institutions what to do and coming in and, you know, really dictating what student bodies would look like in a way that could really reshape American higher education. And so the senator started, you know, to really grapple with, well, what what, what could be the implications of this type of regulation? And at some point, someone says, well, what does this mean about, you know, locker rooms and sports teams? Does this mean that women are going to play football with men and that they're going to use the same locker rooms? And then someone quipped, well, you know, if that's the case, I might've stayed in college a little longer or something like that. You know, it becomes this ruckus debate. And, you know, I have to say one of the most fascinating and fun things about doing this research was having the opportunity to really scour the congressional record and the transcripts from committee and subcommittee hearings to, to get a sense of these discussions because it's, you know, this is all on the record and, you know, they're, they're sort of going down the line of what this could mean for, for sports. And that's the point at which educational, I'm sorry, um, athletic programs really got interested in Title IX. So they raised the sports issue during the debates, but Birch Bay managed to, to sort of allay concerns by incorporating some exemptions. And so he actually exempted traditionally what traditionally single sex education programs like, you know, all women's schools or military academies, also programming like beauty pageants and scouts, things like that. And so that really exemptions like that help to really quell some of the concerns and to get it through. Rose finds that all three policies increased women's use of aid and their educational attainment. 
historically, women have dealt with a really interesting and very gendered calculus when it comes to finding financial resources to go to college. So historically, you know, before the advent of financial aid programs that really reached them broadly, for families that were struck with or that, that grappled with limited resources, oftentimes if they were choosing between educating a son or educating a daughter, they would choose to educate the son with the understanding that he would become a breadwinner for his family and it would be a rational investment. Whereas if they decided to invest in the education of a daughter, that could be risky because she would likely, upon getting married or having kids, rotate out of the labor force. And so any investment would be wasted on a woman. And so when lawmakers were were really considering in the late, the late 1950s about this financial aid program, they actually had women come in and testify and they asked, you know, this, you know, young women of college age, would you consider taking out a loan or, or using loans to go to college? And you'd have these little women on the record or young women on the record say, yes, I would. You might really need the support. I'd be grateful for it. And you'd hear lawmakers going back and forth about whether women would, would, take advantage of loans and this question of who on earth would want to, to would want to marry a woman who's coming into a marriage with you know a student loan dowry um, a dowry of debt and so you know there was this question about whether women would actually take advantage but the early data show that after the National Defense Education Act went into effect you know women soon became very very large participants of the program and and I would argue that as women continued to move into higher education, we started to see um, commiserate increases or comparable increases in their use of financial aid as well. And I think that women's high use of financial aid policy is connected to the fact that women are they're attending higher educational institutions at especially high rates, and they're also going to school longer. So in 2012, for example, women earned a full 60% of all master's degrees conferred in the U.S., and I want to say 51% of all PhDs. So women, you know, are really making use of higher educational programs and the financial aid policies that it takes to pay for them. It even helped equalize women's political participation. As a political scientist, this issue or the question of women's higher educational attainment is especially interesting because political scientists have long recognized that educational attainment is perhaps the most powerful determinant of political participation. So we know that people who have more education are significantly more likely to vote. They're more likely to contact elected officials. They're more likely to contribute to campaigns and to protest. They're also significantly more likely to be mobilized by candidates and parties and interest groups for participation. So you know, the the fact that we started to see a really interesting narrowing of the gender gap in political engagement as we saw women move into higher education, I think, you know, that's what I would have expected to see. And it was really fascinating to see it play out that way. Brendan Cantwell says the positive story of universities improving social mobility is true, but it might depend on limiting institutional inequality. 
those things are, are true, that colleges and universities reproduce inequality, but they also provide a pathway to mobility. Uh, certainly not going to college can lead, uh, can prevent someone from experiencing social mobility or even lead to downward mobility. The reason that institutional inequality matters is because what matter uh, what matters for social mobility is less about getting access to college, but graduating from college. That's the real benefit that people experience is when, they, when they're able to complete a degree. As institutions become more and more tuition dependent, then they have to use tuition money to cover more and more of the sort of basic functions of the university and can invest less intensely on the things that help students get through college, like academic support and rich educational experiences. And when students are then, you know, are getting less of a subsidy and getting less education from their money, then it may put them at greater risk of not being able to graduate. So a study by the economist David Deming, for example, found that what really matters for predicting whether students will graduate is the amount of education spending that they receive rather than the, the, the price of the tuition that they're paying. So what really matters is how much education they're getting more than, more than what they're paying for it. Some inequality was by design, but the system has broken down. State systems of higher education have been unequal by design. And the best example of that is the California Master Plan, where the University of California system sort of sat on top of this system to, to provide elite higher education for the, for the state's most accomplished students with the Cal State system below that providing mass baccalaureate level education and the community colleges below that again as points of access, open access points of access. And the idea was that all of these these three layers would be adequately funded and that there would be mobility within the system so that you could transfer from the community colleges to the Cal States or even to the University of California system. And there was never the intention to provide equal levels of resources for for each campus type, right? The idea is that the research universities required more resources on a per student basis to be able to be top flight research universities. The problem comes in when funding adequacy sort of dries up at, at each of these levels, particularly uh, for the case of the four-year system, which we, we take up in the book at, the, at, the, at the, the, the University of California's or the Cal States. And now they need to sort of make their own way because they can't rely on the state to provide adequate resources to fulfill their mission. They begin to seek tuition. And in order to seek tuition, you need to be able to find tuition payers who are attracted to status or distinction, right? If you're coming from out of state to pay a high to pay a high tuition fee, you want your kid to be going to a good college, right? This is a sort of colloquial term that you'll hear all over the place. Um, my my son or my daughter is going to a good school, and what they mean by that is a is a college or university that sort of has the trappings of elite places. So buildings that, that look nice, maybe that evoke uh, the sort of Gothic architecture of private universities on the East Coast or research enterprises that are visible, laboratories, or even the sort of social aspects of higher education, football stadiums and recreational facilities. And so once uh, colleges are in, uh, have to demonstrate that they're good colleges, that they're places that you would want to actively send your kid, choose to send your kid to above, you know, uh, uh, among a menu of options, 
then um, in order to generate tuition revenue, then this sort of cycle of competition begins. And so uh, I think that the, the inequality that we observe, that we document is both designed and by design and for good reasons, but also has sort of spun out of control because of the consequences of institutions uh, seeking revenue and seeking status in order to be able to attract revenue. Cantwell finds a self-reinforcing cycle based on admissions standards that reinforces inequality. Universities, one of the fundamental ways that they achieve high status is by actively selecting students. And so students with social advantage choose to apply to universities that are perceived to be good schools. And those universities are good schools because they are exclusive and actively select students with um, these markers of merit, like good grades and complement of extracurricular activities, good, good, good SAT or ACT scores. And so these are self-reinforcing types of inequality. Individual inequality allows some students to, to, to be more meritorious or at least to appear more meritorious than others. And the, the schools that are uh, uh, already the most selective are in the best position to select the students that, that are considered the best students. And that's um, one of the ways that individual and institutional inequality feed into each other. Marketization has changed colleges, with the Great Recession making financial challenges more acute. The reason that our that we begin the argument, that we begin the discussion in 1980, is because that's where the uh, literature that that's about the point where the literature says that this sort of hyper this period of hyper competition in higher education that has led to uh, increased inequality between institutions. Um, that's when it really sort of um, began, and. There is, there's a long, there's an established sort of narrative in the literature about marketization in higher education beginning in the 80s and accelerating in the 90s. And we wanted to use that as a backdrop, as the, the sort of uh, the story about how we got to this place where the Great Recession could have dramatically accelerated these, these inequality among institutions. And so there's been, a, a, you know, a, not a great, but a, a, a couple of important studies on institutional, uh, quantitative studies on in, institutional inequality before. And what they basically found is that institutions of higher education have long been uh, unequal and that inequality is growing, but it's growing slowly. And I, th I think that what we wanted to highlight and what we found through our analysis was that these small drifts in, um, in institutional resources um, potentially have big social, bigger social consequences than we thought, and that they can categorically change the way that, the way that institutions operate so that over time, relatively modest, continual drift between the best resourced and the worst resourced institutions can remake the field in ways that are, that are potentially profound for students. Wealthy institutions are pulling away while the bottom hollows out. Since the 80s, elite universities, super elite universities, have been aggressively investing their endowment assets to maximize return rather than to, to preserve capital. And that's resulted in a handful of places just pulling away so that they're able to spend 
two and three times as much per student, even as places that we might think casually are, are, are comparable, right? So the sort of resource intensity of an education at Stanford is really not comparable to the resource intensity of an education at the University of Michigan or the University of California at Berkeley anymore. So there's on one end of this system is this pulling away of absolute remarkable wealth. And at the other end, there is a, a sort of hollowing out of the education that institutions are able to provide, particularly public institutions and uh, many lower status private institutions that rely on tuition and simply cannot raise enough money to keep up with the rising cost of providing uh, a, a, an education to, to, to students. In the middle, things get a little bit messier. So uh, flagship campuses, for example, that get state appropriations, yes, their state appropriations have declined, but they're able, because there's re relatively good demand for those places, they're able to backfill a lot of their lost revenue from the state with tuition money. That raises some equity concerns. So are the flagship campuses seeking more out-of-state students rather than serving in-state students? Are they seeking students with the ability to pay and sort of turning their backs on their access mission and their social mobility mission? And those questions are real, but uh, uh, in terms of the individual inequalities, but the institutions themselves are able to, to sort of um, be okay even though they're losing ground relative to their most elite competitors, right? So the University of Michigan is losing ground to Stanford. It's gaining ground and it is sort of able to provide a much richer education and do many more things, even relative to what it used to be able to do to like other state colleges. Hanwell says the latest admission scandal shows the oddities of the unequal U.S. system. Well, one thing that I think we're learning is that it is just really difficult to figure out how to ration seats at the most desirable colleges and universities, right? It's just a really hard problem to figure out who deserves a spot at Harvard, who deserves a spot at Yale. So that's one thing. It, it, it's just a really tricky problem to figure out how to assign access to these places. Another thing that I've been thinking about um, in uh, reference to the book that, that, that Barrett and I have just finished, but uh, in light of this scandal and in some of the sort of comparative work that I've done is that not all systems are as, are as steeply stratified in terms of status as the U.S. system. So the, so the British system is super stratified as well. But like the Canadian system is less stratified. The University of Toronto is clearly like the biggest uh, research university in the country and produces the most research. But undergraduates don't compete for a place at Toronto. And it's not considered as important to go to Toronto as an undergraduate in Canada as it is to go to, say, a, a big research university in the United States. And it's not clear to me entirely how, how the Canadian system is able to have have a, a much flatter status hierarchy among undergraduate in, 
like uh, higher education for, for undergraduate education, even though they take advantage of the efficiency of concentrating resources, um, resource, research power in a handful of, of universities, there is too much focus on elite institutions that serve a very small number of students and really don't represent the most important questions that we have about higher education, which is how do we uh, get more students into and through meaningful post secondary programs. But uh, so long as there's this strong social pool to, to the elite, it's, it's also not quite uh, right to say, you know, there's the headline in 538. I, I think it might have been uh, the economist Doug Weber who wrote it. It was like, shut up about Harvard. And that makes complete sense. We should shut up about Harvard in a lot of our policy discussions. Um, and Harvard is atypical. It's not a typical place when we think about American higher education. On the other hand, its social pool is so strong that it's kind of impossible to understand the dynamics of the rest of the system if we don't understand what's going on at, at these super elite institutions. Rose says it shows the agreed-upon importance of college in America, but might be a sign that our equality efforts are facing new opposition. On one hand, it signals our general sense that higher education is, I mean, it's, you know, there's the question of credentialism, whether it's the credential itself that, you know, people get as a badge of, you know, accomplishment and as something to justify one socioeconomic status. If, even if, like you say, there's not mobility there necessarily, that makes it easier to transmit wealth from one generation to another, or to have people who are well-connected in certain social networks move within those networks a little more freely or fluidly because they've achieved that credential. But I think it also points to the fact that higher education since the mid-20th century especially has become, you know, something of, I think a lot of people view it as you know, it's just a necessity. It's what you do in order to be a full participant in society. And I'm just struck by the fact that, you know, you see parents who are willing to go to such dramatic lengths to ensure that their kids are able to, you know, gain their higher education in these elite institutions like USC and uh, Yale and other places. I mean, for me, I think there there's also this interesting interpretive element of what we're seeing. And I think it connects to some of the more recent research that I'm doing on higher educational institutions. And I've been doing some work on race and really paying attention to things like affirmative action and the politics of affirmative action. And I think that one of the, at least one of the big questions I have is about the extent to which our narratives of like educational access and who has full access or who has preferred access to institutions shapes how parents are, you know, strategizing how to help their own kids get in. So, you know, is it the case that because lawmakers have created policies that are very, very high profile policies to help marginalized groups gain access to higher education? And some of these policies have have gained a lot of attention. You know, people are aware that we have programs to help low-income students. People are aware that we have programs to help historically marginalized racial and ethnic minorities, for example. And you just have to wonder whether there's some interesting political learning going on here to where privileged, you know, or otherwise privileged 
socioeconomically privileged groups feel somehow disadvantaged. Like, oh gosh, you know, there are these affirmative action policies that are going to make my student who doesn't check off, you know, these three boxes, they're going to place my, my young, you know, my kid at a disadvantage. And so I'm going to have to, to do something different in order to make my child competitive. Both Rose and Cantwell still have faith in universities and higher ed policy. Cantwell says policy needs to look at the system as a whole. The holistic approach is necessary because the colleges and universities are social actors and they respond to what other uh, what other colleges and universities are doing. And so while we agree that policy interventions that are targeted are probably a- appropriate, for example, in the book, we recommend shoring up the finances of the, the public colleges and universities that provide the most access to students of color and to low-income students. We, we think that in order to understand why those colleges and universities have sort of entered this precarious position, it's important to understand the, the system as a whole, because the value of a, of a, of a, of a, of a college degree is in part a, 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 um, positional, and it's relative to the value of the degree at another place. And sort of shoring up the, the, the value of a degree at the points of access, we think, helps to prevent this sort of wider bifurcation of the system, which ultimately we're concerned will sort of accelerate individual inequality by providing um, only low value options to students who come from backgrounds that uh, don't have a lot of social advantage. Rose says, like other U.S. social policy, it needs multiple approaches and updates to work well. I think there's something to thinking about public policy in a holistic way. And I think that's what made this particular combination of policy so powerful. It's that it was this pairing of carrots and sticks. And that's really something of a tradition in U.S. social policy and the history of social policy. You know, oftentimes we'll provide some sort of benefit. You know, in this case, it was financial aid. But we can't necessarily count on institutions to get in line or to necessarily treat everyone equally. So lawmakers might have to circle back and, you know, looking a little more at the big picture, do to create policy to to really drive home that previous one. And so I think just recognizing that the the our capacity to really reach the full potential of these policies has really turned on our capacity to supplement with other programming or other measures that help them to go the distance. We do well to remind ourselves of what is possible in our you know, complex political and policy system, and that even in the face of daunting political challenges, it's possible to get things done when we take advantage of institutional know-how and strategy. And, you know, maybe I think in, in cases like this, you know, getting getting something small done in hopes of supplementing it with additional programming down the line that will help to really drive it home and actualize the entire objective. Cantwell suggests targeting reinvestment and rethinking our focus on portable funding direct to students. 
What we think needs to happen is that public reinvestment needs to occur and that it needs to occur in a targeted way so that it makes sure that the, the state or the public is, sh- is sharing the costs at the public institutions that right now are able to spend the least um, on a per student basis and that require students to, to cover most of, of the total cost of, uh, of their education because those places also happen to be the institutions that, that, that are the greatest points of access for low-income students and students of color. So we think targeted reinvestment in particular parts of the system is necessary rather than thinking about reinvestment as putting the same amount of additional money into all places, right? The other thing that I think that I'm intrigued with as a policy idea and uh, I think needs further investigation is entering into some kind of pact between the federal and state governments and institutions where institutions agree to some level of admission uh, of mission adherence um, may be measured by the way they spend their money, the sort of categories in which they spend their resources. You have to spend so much on educated education in related areas in exchange for maintenance of effort from state and and federal dollars. And that's where I think the federal government has a bigger role to play. I'm not optimistic in the short run about this, but rather than the federal government only involving itself through portable student aid, so you know, uh, grants and loans directly to students who can take them to whatever institution they want, that if the federal government could provide direct funding to states, to institutions in this sort of maintenance of effort kind of approach that, that you see in other in other policy areas that I don't know all that well. You probably know a lot better than me. Uh, th- those are promising ideas. Now, there are some concerns. Up next for Cantwell is looking at how institutions are evolving. Closing colleges is not all a sign of crisis, but it might start to be. In some cases, it's not a sign of crisis and that it is something like market forces weeding out places that just aren't sustainable anymore. When small private colleges in regions that have flat or declining populations go under, I think that we probably shouldn't worry too much about it. On the other hand, if public colleges and universities begin to face serious pressure, serious financial pressure to the point of insolvency, then I think it's something that we do need to pay a lot of attention to because those institutions are points of access for students who can realize social mobility through them. And because we will sort of contribute to the, it'll contribute to this path, this, this ongoing process of unequal or uneven access. So if there's a public college or university in your area, you're able to to go to college because it's accessible to you sort of through its proximity. And if places start to go in rural areas and in urban areas, public universities are unable to maintain operations, then we're going to have more of these so-called college deserts or education deserts. Next up for Rose is looking at the role of historically black colleges in black leadership. So I'm working on a new project that looks at the relationship between historically black colleges and universities and what I term the redistribution 
in, of American political power in, in regards to race. So looking at how HBCUs have helped African Americans to move into positions of political leadership and to also consider the extent to which government has played a role in shaping them and influencing the work that they've done over the years. One of the things that really got me fascinated by this topic is the fact that when doing research on for, for this first book, for the Higher Education Act, I remember pouring through the statutes and finding really interesting discussions. Whenever lawmakers would, would start getting into higher education and talking about financial aid, there were, there were oftentimes sort of nearby discussions of historically Black colleges and how they are such a, a valuable national resource that we have to prize and take care of. And I was really wondering, you know, is that actually how we treat them? Have we prized them and taken care of them, you know, to the extent that lawmakers have said that we should? I was also struck by the fact that I want to say it's 80 percent of all African-American judges in the United States have at least one degree from an HBCU. And it's something like 60 percent of black lawyers, 50 percent of black members of Congress. I mean, these really substantial proportions of African-Americans who are involved in roles that are so connected to politics and government who were trained in historically black colleges. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to DeAndra Rose and Brendan Cantwell for joining me. Please check out their books, Citizens by Degree and Unequal Higher Education, and then listen in next time.